Matthew chapter 16, we run into an encounter between some religious people and Jesus. Now, when we see encounters between religious people and Jesus, we usually, you know, after we read several of these cases, we kind of know what to expect. <laughs> Jesus is not going to deal very, I don't know, optimistically with them. <laughs> Jesus is kind and merciful. But with the religious leaders who were self-righteous, self-seeking, who considered only the things of the flesh, refused to give themselves to the revealed word that they were supposed to be shepherds of, Jesus does not usually deal too kindly with them. Matthew 16, starting in verse 1, we're going to read a passage here today and we're going to be able to learn from them. Um, from the scriptures. Let's read this passage together. Matthew 16, starting in verse 1. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us a sight of what you're trying to do here in your scriptures, why you have included this in your scriptures for us to learn. I pray that we would give you the honor of fearing you and believing your word. We place, our, we place ourselves under your guidance. In Jesus' name. Amen. So here, in chapter 16, in this first portion, this is kind of split into two different sections here, but I think they're both related, so I want to deal with them um, together. Though, in my studies, I'm going to be leaving a lot unsaid, because there's a lot that we could talk about in these two little sections here. Um, but we see an encounter between the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were two of the primary sects of religious leaders in Israel. Now, the Old Testament does not prescribe the sects of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These came about after the Old Testament was written um, in a period where Israel had been overthrown by Rome and they had no king, they had no prophets, they had really the priesthood was a sham. Um, so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, they were kind of instituted to lead the people religiously. Um, the old system had failed, not because God's ways fail, but because they did exactly what they were supposed to do, 
Um, they led people to see just how empty they were apart from the mercy and the grace of God. Um, but as people are, we like to take control of God's things. So we have these different sects um, of religious leaders who essentially were replacing the word of God uh, with their own traditions. This is one of the reasons why Jesus was dealt so harshly with them um, throughout his earthly ministry. These Pharisees and these Sadducees approached Jesus asking him for a sure sign that he was a Messiah. He said, they came to him and they said to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, it's interesting when he says to test them, right? Um, they weren't actually trying to find reason to have faith in Jesus. They were simply trying to catch Jesus in something that he said, right? Have you ever been in a debate or a fight with somebody where nobody really is concerned about what's true or what's false? Everybody just wants to be right, and they want to show up the other person, right? We've all been there. This is essentially what they're trying to do. They're trying to show up Jesus. They're trying to catch him. They're trying to take something that he says, turn it on its head so that they can accuse Jesus. You know, when um, Jesus... Um, was being, was arrested in the end before he was crucified. He was arrested by the high priest and his servants and, and soldiers. He was brought before um, the council and before Pilate. And people were just accusing him, accusing him, accusing him. And even the scriptures, it said that none of the witnesses agreed with each other. They were just all fumbling over their words because they could find nothing of real substance to accuse Jesus of. Even though they had tried and tried and they were trying to twist Jesus' words to make him sound like a horrible person. Um, and they just, they couldn't. Pilate was just like, and Pilate was a wise man. And he was just like, there is nothing standing against this man. He's innocent. What are you doing? Why are you bringing him before me? You have no case. Um, but here's an instance. Thank you, Jackie. <laughs> Appreciate that. Here's an instance where... They're trying to gather some information that they can accuse Jesus of. And they're asking, show us a sign from heaven, as though they needed more signs. <laughs> We've been seeing signs after signs, loaves, a, a small piles of loaves. On two different occasions, a small pile of loaves and a few fishes. All of a sudden, they're feeding thousands, thousands and thousands of people. I mean, what... Even if it was, that was the only thing Jesus did, do you need any, anything else to know that this man is a special man come from God? <laughs> you know? And this is, they're asking him this right after he did this. He's been healing people, he's been doing all sorts of signs and wonders. And here the Pharisees and Sadducees came and said, Show us a sign from heaven. <laughs> you know, they probably, in their discourse, they probably added something to the, you know, trying to manipulate Jesus. If you just show us a sign, we'll believe in you. You know, and Jesus had been already showing them signs after signs after signs after signs. He had actually, if you look through these scriptures and then you and then you um, you put them up against the prophecies that the Messiah would fulfill when he came in the Old Testament, he's fulfilled almost all of them except for one very important one that we that Brother Rich read in Isaiah 53. I'll read it to you again so you can kind of see this sign that would prove Jesus to be the Messiah eventually. One of the signs. He had already performed other signs from Isaiah. Um, the one lacking sign that was yet to be performed was his suffering and his death. 
In Isaiah 53.3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter. And like a sheep that was before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for this generation, for as for his generation, who, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And he made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is what he had not quite done yet. He had not died. He had not gone to the cross bearing our sins. At this point of Jesus' ministry, this was the last thing that really needed to be accomplished in order for him to fulfill all prophecy. Um, Isaiah chapter 56, um, if you turn there with me, it's just a page over, 56.1 records, um, for the key, <clears throat> right, that's not the right one that I was looking at, let's see here. In another, in another uh, uh, prophecy from Isaiah, which actually we see in Matthew chapter 11, we've, I preached on this several weeks ago, Matthew chapter 11 John the Baptist, if you want to look at that, John the Baptist is actually coming to Jesus in a place of doubt himself. You know, these Pharisees and these Sadducees, they didn't want to believe in Jesus. John the Baptist was doubting, but he wanted to believe in Jesus. So there's a little distinction here, but Jesus says, you know, John the Baptist, he was in prison. He sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one that we should be looking for or should we be looking for another? In verse 4, Jesus answered and he said, go tell John... What you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now he's not just making up stuff. He is actually quoting Isaiah 61 verse 1. As things that the Messiah would do when he came and revealed himself. And Jesus is saying, John the Baptist, you know the prophecies. Look at what I'm doing. Am I fulfilling the prophecies or no? But actually, I am fulfilling the prophecies because I'm doing exactly what Isaiah said that I would be doing. So John the Baptist was doubting, but he wanted to believe in Jesus, but he was in, he was in a point of anguish. His soul was in anguish. He was in prison. He was, being, he was facing death. And he wanted to know, was his life all a waste? Or did he actually point people to the Messiah? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, on the other hand... 
They just wanted power and authority. They were jealous of Jesus. Jesus was causing a stir. He was changing their rituals and their traditions. He was drawing people away from the things that the Pharisees had been making up. They wanted to catch him so they could arrest him and get him out of the spotlight. They didn't want to believe in Jesus, so they were trying to catch him. Even though these people, more than anybody, would have known the prophecies about the Messiah. I mean, the part of their job was to memorize the law and the prophets. They had this stuff down. They should have been able to see what was going on. But in Isaiah 50, in chapter um, 53, he even, it even says here, um, in verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? You know, basically what that's saying is like nobody, you know, the people didn't really realize what was happening. People didn't really realize that he was actually going to be cut off from his people for the sake of their sins and for their salvation. Now, if the Pharisees would have understood what this was talking about uh, faithfully, they would have realized that one um, key part of the Messiah's ministry is that he would be rejected by his generation. Now, imagine being a Pharisee and you're teaching your people this concept. You know, in Isaiah, the prophet prophesied that our generation was not going to accept the Messiah when he came and that we would reject him and kill him. <laughs> imagine you being a religious leader te teaching your people that. That like just, I mean, you'll know when the Messiah comes when me and my friends kill him. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, that's just not something that they were going to be teaching. That's not something that they were willing to accept, you know. Um, but that's what was going to happen. That's what Isaiah was teaching the people through his prophecy in Isaiah 53, that he would be rejected. And that he was in, in, in Matthew chapter 16, he's in the midst of this, being rejected by his generation, ultimately offered up for death. You know, if the, if the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not able to discern what has already been happening, as Jesus had already been proving himself, another sign, if they were not going to accept what they've already been seeing, another sign was not going to help. Jesus had already fulfilled most of what had been written by the prophets concerning the Messiah. And he even says to them, he says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 2, he answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know, he's, being, he's giving a little meteor, me, meteorology, whatever. I'm not a meteorologist. But apparently, people can tell the weather by what the sky looks like. <laughs> uh, that's not my thing. Uh, that can be your thing, um, just not my thing. He says to them, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. He's telling, remember, you know, if he was talking to a common person or a Gentile who wasn't as aware of the prophecies, he probably wouldn't be talking like this. But he's talking to the religious leaders, the people who had most of the Old Testament memorized. And he's saying, you already know what the Messiah would look like. And I look like him. If you're not willing to accept me based off of what you know and how I stand up, against, stand up to that, then you're not going to respond to another sign. You're already rejecting me and trying to find another reason to reject me. And he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. 
In other words, um, an evil-adulterous generation is not content with what the Lord has given already. Jesus had already been living out the life of the Messiah without being asked. But that's who he was. He was the Messiah, so he's going to act like it. But the people, the religious leaders especially, were not willing to accept what they were given so they were constantly asking for more. They're really just showing their insatiableness, their, their lack of faith, and always wanting more in order to satisfy them. That's what defines an evil and adulterous generation. I always need more. I can't be satisfied with what's been given to me. I can't be content with what God has already revealed. And we can see that in our generation where we're always, we're always calling the Scriptures into question because we're not satisfied with it. God, you need to give me a little bit more. You need to give me something a little bit more up-to-date, right? We need another edition of the Scriptures because there, there's so much in here that it just can't be true. It can't be relatable. It's 2,000 years old. God, we need something more. We're insatiable. And then the next generation, we just ask for one other thing. Not even a generation. Whatever you want to believe, you want something to match what you want. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. They were religious. They were holy people. But they weren't satisfied with the real Jesus. The objective Messiah who is and was and will always be. They didn't want that one. They wanted a Jesus fashioned in their own image according to their own desires. Really, they didn't want any Messiah at all because they liked their authority. They liked where they were in life. They didn't want a Messiah to come and overturn everything. So they were constantly trying to find reasons to get this guy out of the picture. In Luke chapter 16, verse 19, kind of drives this home. There's a story um, about the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, perhaps you remember this story. And the story, um, well, let's just read through it. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's, Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received, good, received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So up to this point, we see a rich man who had lived a wealthy life, apparently his faith was not in the proper place. He was probably a Jew, a child of Abraham. He was calling Abraham his father. He was a Jew. He was in the lineage of Abraham, the promised people of God, right? But yet he's in hell. And 
this other man, Lazarus, and notice the rich man had no name in the story, but the poor man has a name. Lazarus is in paradise with Abram, Abraham. And the rich man, the nameless rich man, who had a name while he lived, but as those who, as many who say, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom, he will say to some, I never knew you. Even though you've done, you know, even though they would claim, I've done many wondrous deeds in your name, but yet the Lord will turn to them and say, I never knew you. Depart from me. So the rich man has no name. Lazarus, a nameless man on earth, has a name with God. So the rich man is asking for comfort, and Abraham is saying, sorry, not possible. So the rich man says, I've got a family, and I'm worried about them because they live the same way I lived, and if what I was doing wasn't enough, then what they're doing is not enough, and I don't want them to come here. Can you please send Lazarus to them to tell them what they need to do? And Abraham says, sorry, can't do that either. <laughs> and he says in verse, uh, verse 29, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he, the nameless rich man, says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He, Abraham, responds and says to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. A faith that saves is not a faith that is reliant upon signs and wonders. A faith that saves is reliant upon what God has already revealed to us. We want signs. We want God to just spell out his will in the sky. To show us all these miracles. To prove to us what it is, exactly it is we want him to prove to us. Different people, it's different things. Because we're not satisfied with what God has already given us. And if we cannot be satisfied with what God has already given to us, then we will not be satisfied in his presence. Just like the rich, just like the rich man. He was a Jew. Man, he was part of the chosen nation. He did well for himself. I mean, obviously God had blessed him in life, right? I mean, that, that was especially the way people saw things back then. The rich people were the people who were blessed. Today we more attribute it to just hard work and smarts and things like that or dumb luck <laughs> or whatever back then it was like man if you were rich you were blessed by god or the gods he was blessed in life man he was a child of abraham he was blessed but now he's in hell this poor man no blessing from god in life and no name no nothing but yet he's now in the bosom of abraham and Abraham cries to him, no, I can't send him because it's not going to do any good. Even if a dead man rises and preach, proclaims this message, if you need a sign and a wonder in order to have faith, then your faith is misplaced because God has already given you the way. And you don't believe it. If they're not going to believe what has already been given to them, then they have no hope. Even if they, they might... You know, fall on their knees crying and repenting at the at the words of a dead man. But it'll be it's short lived. 
It's just like the seeds that fall amongst the stony ground and they're excited for a short time, but then they have no root and they die. Because there's no substance. This is the substance. People can make us make a lot of hasty decisions based off of excitement. It doesn't, but the true genuineness of our faith comes by simple faith in what God has already said. I mean, words are not exciting, but when the Lord opens these words up to you and you see Jesus and you love Jesus, now that is a miracle. That is a miracle of faith. We have to move on. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 56, verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteous, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. So this passage is recording a plea to God's people to do righteousness, to follow the law, to follow what God has given them. Seek justice. Why? In anticipation and watchfulness of the promised salvation that God will bring. He says, keep justice and do righteousness for, because soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. So this was the ministry of John the Baptist, to call the people to this, to do to the righteousness and the justice of God while they wait for the coming Messiah. Uh, soon the salvation would come. Now, watchfulness, anticipation of Messiah, these were key aspects to what a righteous person was in the, uh, in the Old Covenant, right? However, the Pharisees were like those mentioned a little further down in this passage in verses 9 through 12, which say, All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts of the forest, his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let us let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink and tomorrow will be like this day. Great beyond measure. These, this is what the Pharisees were. They were stuck in their own power, their own appetites. Whatever was good for them. You know, tomorrow will be just like this day. They had no anticipation of the salvation of God through the Messiah. They had not, and he compares them to um, blind watchmen. They're, they're in a position of a watchman, but they can't see. They're used, I mean, do you set a blind person on your security guard? You set him in front of those, you know, in a more modern version, you hire a security guard to sit at his desk with all these screens in front of him, with all the, all the security cameras pointing around the building, but the guy you hired is blind. Is that a good idea? Is that guy going to be very useful? No. But these Pharisees and these Sadducees were blind watchmen. They were supposed to be helping the people know when the Messiah came. But all, they were trapped in their own appetites. They were using their position for their own gain. And in Mark chapter 15, verses 42 and 43, point out a religious leader who would have been among this um, group. This is after Jesus was crucified. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. And in the, in the passage, uh, he was the one who asked for Christ's body so that he could bury it properly because he had respect and honor for Jesus. And one of the distinguishing factors in this passage about Joseph is that he was a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. That is, he was being watchful for the Messiah. He was somebody who was actually doing what he was supposed to be doing, one of the few 
There were a few, but few, right? This man honored Christ by taking his body and burying him, even though he probably did not know exactly what had just happened to his Messiah. The implication being this distinguishing quality of Joseph um, can be emphasized by something Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 19, where he says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, the point that Joseph of Arimathea was recognized is because he was, he was an anomaly amongst the religious leaders. Most of the religious leaders were not looking for the kingdom of God. Not according to the scriptures, but Joseph was said to have been looking for the kingdom of God. One of the few. That's why it was stated, because he was weird compared to all of the other Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders. All this to say, one might be hasty and think that these Pharisees in this passage that we're looking at, and the Sadducees were asking fair questions like, Jesus, we really want to see a sign. I mean, if you just show us some signs, we'll be able to put our faith in you. But the very fact that they asked the question revealed not just a lack of faith, but also a spirit of hostility and rejection. And Jesus' response to this further proves this. He, tell, you know, he told them, you know how to tell the weather, you know how to see the signs, but you have no idea what you're looking at concerning the Messiah. You're blind. You're blind guides. And he says, nothing will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, which would, be, which would have been, he just gave him a riddle, try to figure this out. He goes more into this um, in Matthew 12, verses 38 to 42. Um, I'm not going to get into all of this, but he says, you know, verse 38, Matthew 12, 38 says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered, so this is like the same situation, <laughs> different day and time. And he answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So he'd already said this. He's just reminding the Pharisees what he already said. Think about Jonah, right? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Sign of Jonah... Jesus died and he was buried for three days and rose on the third day. Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days, as good as dead, miraculously, didn't die. You know, if you're in the belly of a whale, it's kind of a miracle to not die uh, for three days. But, then, but even on top of that, Nineveh, people who had no part in God, he, they, had, they did not have the covenants, they did not have the scriptures, but yet they repent at a simple message of repentance. And turning to God. But yet God's own chosen people require so many elaborate things in order to follow, in order to obey. Nineveh, the most wicked nation on the earth at that time, repented in the simplicity of Jonah's, what, 12 or 16 word sermon? But yet God's own people who have the law, they have the prophets, they have the covenants, the promises, they are constantly, give me signs, give me wonders, give me blessings, give me this, give me that, give me this other thing. They're not satisfied with what, they will not be satisfied with what God has given. So with all this in mind, Matthew chapter 16, 
There's more I could talk about, but for the sake of time, we've got to keep moving through this passage here. He goes to his disciples, and they're in a boat, they're traveling. The disciples realized they had forgotten bread. Jesus said to them, in context of them thinking about bread, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, We brought no bread. So they're saying, thinking that Jesus is rebuking them for forgetting about food, as though that's something that Jesus really cared about. But Jesus answered and said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? He's rebuking them, for sure. But he's rebuking them because they're not getting the obvious. If, if, they, if they really needed the bread, why were they... Why would Jesus rebuke them? He just fed thousands of people <laughs> miraculously. Does Jesus really need to worry about bread? Did his disciples, they saw all this happening. The Lord of all creation, he can make food come out of nowhere. But yet they're worried because they forgot bread for a boat ride to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They just couldn't get it. <laughs> what? What would you say? I'm hungry. <laughs> Maybe they were hangry. <laughs> you know, I need something to eat now. My appetite needs to be satiated. But and then they think Jesus is rebuking them as though, as though forgetting food is something Jesus would rebuke somebody about. He didn't care about that stuff. Oh, you have little faith. But then he follows this up. And we, and we could go into this more, but the last two weeks we've discussed this faithlessness in the midst of proof and evidence but dealing with this he says again beware of the leaven of the pharisees and the sadducees in verse 12 then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread but of the teaching of the pharisees and the sadducees now why would he call it leaven leaven was something that was in a jew's mind is as relating to worship and feasts, particularly the feast of the Passover, which was instituted to remind the people of that night of the 10th plague in Egypt when they were still slaves. And God drew them out. Now, um, <clears throat> God told them in Exodus 12.34, don't put leaven in your bread that night. And he actually said, this night and forevermore, you know, throughout the rest of your you know, um, throughout forevermore, don't put leaven in your bread on the feast of the Passover because if you do, you're going to be cut off from my people forever. <laughs> now that's a super harsh judgment on people who just sprinkle some, some yeast on some bread. <laughs> you know, he says, if you do that during this feast, then you will no longer have any part in my people forever. Wow. And now he's saying, now Jesus is saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which would bring, which would relate them. If you heed the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, then you're not gods, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees are not gods. They are this leaven, this condemning leaven. Now this this rule was given because of imminency. The people were not supposed to make bread and then wait for it to rise, because their salvation was happening that night. 
They were supposed to operate with a spirit of eminency of self, for, for their salvation and watchfulness, just on the, on the edge of their seat, waiting to be saved from Egypt and redeemed. But yet we've seen that one of the problems of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is they had left watchfulness behind them years ago. They no longer cared about the kingdom of God. They cared about their own kingdom. And we see Jesus warning his disciples to be watchful and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And there's some reasons why their teaching needs to be repulsed. Their leaven was their teaching. The disciples finally realized what Jesus was talking about. And there are a number of ways, and we don't have time to get into all the passages around these seven points, but the Pharisees' teachings were eleven. They were condemning. They were damning rather than redeeming for seven reasons. The fair, one, the Pharisees' teachings led people away from the written word. In Mark 7, we see that they were constantly replacing the word of God with their own traditions. I mean, we see that all around the United States. People call themselves Christian all the time. But then you ask them, well, how are you a Christian? Well, then they'll give you a list of things that they're doing that aren't actually in the scriptures. <laughs> they're not actually in the scriptures. Well, I, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I, I listen to the right kind of music, I go to church every Sunday and sometimes on Wednesdays, and none of those things are actually in the Scriptures, but those are the evidences that people will give for how they're, how they're following Jesus. That is the leaven of the Pharisees, because it takes you away from the written Word of God. What does the Word of God actually say about following Jesus? Well, some things, loving your brother, loving your enemy... Praying for those who persecute you, forgiving one another. Those are the type, those are more of the types of things that the Bible actually says about being a Christian. Two, the Pharisees' teaching trained people to prefer man-made wisdom and traditions to God's own words. This is very related to the second to the first point. Um, but they were constantly telling people, follow these rules and these rituals that were not in the scriptures. Three, the Pharisees' teaching challenged Christ's authority. They were constantly trying to lead people away from believing in Jesus. And there's plenty of that in this world today. Teaching, even in churches that are leading people to honor people rather than Jesus. Four, the Pharisees' teaching rejected Christ. There are people in this world telling you Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is not the only way to God. You can get to God in other manners. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. They rejected Christ as the Messiah, the one way to God. Number five, the Pharisees' teaching questioned Christ, Christ's judgment. They were, constantly take, they were constantly trying to take Christ's wisdom, turn it into something that's wrong, turning it into something that doesn't really work. You know, that's where you have the authority of Scripture coming into the question where people will pull out passages and be like, well, this passage is not really practical, or this isn't really true, or this doesn't really work. I mean, but if you look at modern psychology, now that works, but the scriptures there, you know, that's, it was written at a time when there was no psychological, you know, or, or medicinal, you know, advancements or things like that. So we don't need that anymore. We need what the modern world has to provide. It questions Christ's judgment. Number six, the Sadducees, okay, they're different than the Pharisees. The Sadducees' teachings 
rejected and turned people away from future hope. It's written in the scriptures that the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They did not believe in an eternal life. They believed that once your body dies, your soul is gone. It's done. All you have is this life. That's what the Pharisees were teaching. So the teaching of the Sadducees turned people away from future hope. That is, in in a more modern context, well, one, it's evolutionary in the sense that we have no eternal soul. Once your body dies, you that's it. That's that's all there is. But then there's also the sense where all this teaching and all the all the guidance that we get is all about this life, this kingdom, how to be happy today. And it distracts you from your future hope that we're all supposed to be watchful because we're still supposed to be watchful. We still have salvation and redemption coming. Christ is coming back again. And any teaching that causes people to focus on their current state of health, wealth, and happiness would relate to the teaching of the Sadducees. And in Mark 12, 24, if there's one passage that you want to look at, the Sadducees' teaching was not based purely on the Scriptures in the fear of God. He is addressing them in Mark 12, 24, and he says, and Jesus said to them, this is just to the Sadducees, the Pharisees weren't part of this conversation, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you don't know the Scriptures. What you're teaching is not based on the Scriptures. It's based on whatever your philosophical conquests have discovered. You're wrong because you don't know the Scriptures. And two, you don't know the power of God. Even if you knew the Scriptures, you wouldn't honor them because you don't fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says, over a dozen times. If you don't fear God, then it doesn't matter what the Scriptures say. You're not going to give a hoot. So one, you need to know the script. So if you want to, if you want to walk with Jesus, if you want to know the will of God, then the opposite must be true. You know the Scriptures, but not just that. There are plenty of learned people in this world who are fools, who are blind guides to blind people. But one, you know the Scriptures, and two, you fear God. You fear Him. You will believe every word that He has spoken. And you will seek to obey Him and to follow Him and to believe every single thing that He has said. Now that sounds hard. And it is hard. One of the, Sometimes I think that me as your pastor, I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world because I have to stand up here and tell you everything that God said in His Scriptures, things that I struggle with and I fail at. Sometimes I am the biggest hypocrite in this church. Because I'm, I have to say the perfect word of God as, it, as he states it. But I also fail. And I also fall. So I'm not saying that that's easy. But what I am saying, here's the guidance. If you want to be on this journey with Christ, you need to learn the scriptures. You need to humble yourself before God and fear him. And devote yourself to believing and following him in all that he has said by his grace through faith. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him, the scriptures say. We, we receive Christ by faith because of his great grace, not by works of righteousness does he accept us, but according to his mercy, he calls us to him. In that same regard, we need his grace and his mercy as we seek 
to go out and embark on a journey with Christ, to be like Christ, to follow Christ, to be His light in this world. God making His appeal through us to the rest of the world as His ambassadors. We need His grace and His mercy and His spiritual, miraculous transformation every single day of our lives. Not just the day of our salvation, but every day ever since then. We need Him. We need His grace and His mercy to not just teach us and train us and humble us, but to also bring fruitfulness to those things as we are walking in His name. So if there is one challenge today, don't be like the Pharisees. <laughs> Jesus said, beware and be watchful that you do not give heed to the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. One way, you, if you were to summarize their teaching, if it leads you to be more concerned about this life than the life that's to come, then you have taken heed to the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you don't really care that much about the Scriptures, you would rather just have 12 bullet points from a self-help book to guide you than you've given heed to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But if those are part of how we have lived our lives, we can repent by the grace of God. We can. And we can do as Jesus said, know the Scriptures and fear God. We can, by His grace. He is there with us. If you seek me, you will find me. If you search for me with your whole heart. We have a great promise for that. It will make, not make your life easy. Remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus had a miserable life. I'm not saying that if you follow Jesus, you're going to have a miserable life and you better just suck it up. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, God is not concerned with this life. He is concerned with the next life. And everything that's going on in this life is supposed to serve the next life. That's why we're supposed to be watchful and be awake for Christ's coming, where he brings full restoration and brings us into his presence, as Vernon just experienced. Vernon is in the presence of God now, tasting of the fruit of his labor and his faith in life. Rejoicing all the way. Not sad that he's gone, but happy that he's in the presence of God. His eternal hope. And we must be watchful because all of us, every single one of us will die one day. Every single one of us will. We need to live remembering that. That this life is going to end. But the next life will not. What are you going to do in mindfulness of that? Lord, I just give us wisdom. All this, there's so many practical implications for every individual in this in this church. But Lord, by your Spirit, please guide us in how you how you want see that we need to repent and walk more closely with you. Let us walk in thankfulness and gratefulness for what Christ has done, giving us salvation by His grace. Just help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.